Master Bowman podcast. If you're obsessed with the strategies, gear, and stories that will make you a better backcountry bow hunter, you're in the right place. We're independent, unsponsored, and unbiased, so we can cut the fluff and give you detailed advice on what really works and what doesn't. In this episode, we interview Roger Brown, who's actually my archery instructor, and I've learned a ton from him. He has shot for the USA Archery team, has done a lot of competitive archery. Uh, He won his fight at, at Vegas last year, and he is truly a master of his craft, and I think you'll enjoy this one. So, hey, Josh. Hey, Baxter. Uh, this is an exciting, exciting episode um, because we have a guest today. His name's Roger Brown. Um, maybe I'll introduce how I met Roger uh, and then I uh, convinced him to come on our show. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I first met Roger when I went to our local archery shop here in the Bay Area. Uh, it's called Archery Only. And um, him and Wayne, who's the archery, the owner of the shop, they were always hanging out around there. And uh, you could just tell when you look at these guys that they know some stuff. <laughs> and so I tried to hang out there as much as possible. I, I bought a bow, just started asking questions, uh, found out Roger did uh, private lessons for archery. And so I ended up doing three of those with him within my first, I want to say, six months of picking up a bow. And he has really helped me build a very solid foundation in archery. Um, my scores have gone up from, I think, like 245-ish last year to about 290-ish now. And he's been a giant part in that. So first, Roger, I want to start off by saying thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really flattered. <laughs> so, Roger, actually, I would love to dive into first your background. I know you played a lot of sports growing up. Uh, I know your father was a, a coach, a basketball coach, I believe it was. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, been around high level athletics my whole life. My dad was a, a world class high jumper, and so the a lot of the people or the the environment I hung around when I was very young, I was surrounded with like high level athletes, Tommy Smith um, and Lee Evans, all the people from San Jose State. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the history of uh, San Jose State track and field. There's a community of high-level athletes. I went to the Olympics and did very well, set lots of records. So I've kind of been immersed in that side of the athletic field. I didn't start getting into the shooting sports until later on in my life. So mm-hmm. that has a heavy influence on how I, I approach archery or shooting sports in general. It has to do with someone that you know does a traditional sport like basketball or baseball. So. My dad being a coach in, uh, in uh, basketball, football, track and field, and also here uh, in the Bay Area, he's a coach for an athletic director at Oakland Technical High School for about 30 years. I've got to see some fantastic athletes. Ricky Henderson played for, for my dad. Wow. So quite a few All-Americans in that environment, just in that league. It was one of the premier leagues in the whole country. So a lot of the Division One schools, when they came to recruit, especially for basketball, the OEL was one of those leagues. So okay. that's kind of why my demeanor around archery is more like someone that comes from a traditional sport. Gotcha. Because that's my background. I played basketball, football, and track, and all that other stuff. Right. I didn't get into archery until much later on in my, my life. I was about probably 20, 23 or so that oh, I decided okay. that I was going to get a bow. Something I was always interested in as, as a kid, but never had the real opportunity to be serious about it. But 
think in my mid to late twenties is when I actually purchased my first real bow and started to uh, partake in the sport. You know, there's always Mike, like Malcolm Gladwell will, will write about like these pockets of certain areas where a lot of elite performers come out of a uh, quick question on just to double click on uh, the place where your dad coached and maybe even San Jose. What do you think it is about the culture or something that your dad in, in terms of the way he led or, or the culture, what they taught there that pr- produced so many elite athletes? Uh, it has to do with, believe it or not, a sense of community. It's a really fascinating thing. And I don't know if you pick it up, a lot of these guys that are now playing basketball, they, they all, uh, especially the elite guys, they all come from the same environment. So they've known each other their whole lives. And it's, it's kind of, there's kind of like a, a camaraderie. It's, 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 it's more prevalent in track and field. Because in track and field, the, the mindset is that you're, you're not really competing against the person. You're, you're competing against the mark or a height or a time. And so everyone is rooting for you. So it's really interesting when you go to a, a, a track and field meet and the word gets out that someone's setting a record, everyone gets up and encourages that athlete. Everyone, even the fellow competitors, everyone's clapping, trying to get that person motivated to, to reach that, that mark. And so I noticed that with my dad's guys, they're pl- they, the games would get is pretty intense. <laughs> the guys want to fight, but there's kind of a bond when these guys are putting their heart and soul into this game. That uh, even if you watch some of the documentaries, these guys have these lifelong bonds. It has to do with that sport and playing at that level. There's a connection, and so even even the guys that my father, they they all eventually got into coaching. A lot of them did. Even after their careers, they, they still conversed with each other. They still shared information. They, they still helped each other. And so there's, there's a, a sense of community. I think that that's the – when you get into these – well, we'll use De La Salle football. Are you familiar with that program? Uh, I think I've heard of them. Yeah. They've had the longest winning streak in sports history at any level. They won 152 games straight. Wow. <laughs> And no one's ever done that. I don't think no one will ever do that again. And there's a fascinating book called When the Game Stands Tall. We were all fascinated by that. I was fascinated. How? Because I know about high school athletics. Every year it changes. How, how is, especially football, how are they able to s- sustain this level of excellence year after year after year? It's like seven years straight or something they didn't lose. And uh, one of the writers from the Contra Costa Times asked the same question. And the coach says, I can't explain it to you, but what, what I'll do is I'll allow you to hang out with us for a year. Maybe you'll understand. And that's what the, the book is about, is this uh, writer hanging out with the team for a year. And the thing that sticks out in the book is how the players bonded with each other. There's a it's a, it's a love that they have. They have these commitment cards that they sign. So it's, a, it's a, again, a community, a bond. And that's what creates this level, high level of performance. Even when I, when I go to archery tournaments, I, I, shot, uh, I shoot Olympic recovery. I shoot regular compounds as well. All of the guys that were all traveling around the country trying to reach the same goal, which is basically trying to make the national team, there's a bond there. It's it's really hard to explain. 
And so you're, you're, once you feel a part of that community or that bond or that connection, it allows you, one, to have an open mind when someone's trying to explain something to you and or you have enough, uh, you're, you're comfortable around these people to where you can uh, ask them questions and, and they're willing to help you. And so that's a big part of how I was able to progress in the sport. It was just being in that environment. That was a, that was a huge, 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 huge uh, advantage for me, was being able to shoot these tournaments at the national and international level, just hanging out, just going to Vegas and hanging out, taking my camera, listening to guys talk, asking questions. It's invaluable. And so that, that environment stems from the connection that the people have with each other. Yeah, that's a really interesting point and something that didn't really seem very obvious. Um, so you mentioned you picked up a, you got into the shooting sports in your mid to late 20s. Um, what was it about archery and what is it still about archery that you love so much and has led you to go shoot in the Olympic trials and, and beyond? I, I'm always fascinated with uh, technique. I'm not a super competitive person. I'm, I'm more about the connection or the feeling of doing things. So even, I used to play a lot of tennis when I was younger. And the feeling of hitting that ball correctly on the serve or a backhand or whatever, it just resonates to your body. That, that's the same kind of energy that I have about, about archery, is, is the art of it, the feeling of it. And that allows me to put the large amounts of time into, you know, developing the techniques so that you, come, you do become proficient. So, you, you know, you can shoot decent scores and all the rest of that stuff. But that's the core of it is my fascination with the, with the mastering uh, the technique, the discipline of it. That's yeah. most of the things that I do. I'm really fascinated with the technique or uh, uh, the art or the aesthetic of a lot of the things. It's not necessarily the outcomes. The outcomes are a byproduct of all of that. And so <clears throat> I know, I don't know for you, when I was explaining this to you early on, when you shoot, and as soon as you get to anchor and everything settles down, you you know before that shot even breaks, uh, it's 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 an, it's an X before even the arrow gets to the target. You, you feel it. So that's what I live for is that that feeling more more or less. How has your archery career changed? Because you mentioned you're not competitive, and yet you still were able to shoot at such a high level to to go to the Olympic trials. And I know you won your your heat in Vegas last year. I saw it on the website, and I know you don't like to brag, but <laughs> could you share a little bit about your your journey, your archery career, and how it's evolved over time? So the the idea of of getting into tournaments and shooting tournaments wasn't necessarily winning for me. It was getting better. I, I knew that it, it, in order for me to be better, I have to shoot with the best guys. And so that, that's what happened. That, that's the byproduct of going to these tournaments is I got better. And um, I, I, I learned a lot from asking the guys questions on how they're able to perform at this level. And it, it's a common thing. You got to put the time in. And so. Uh, my first tournament, I shot the state indoor down in, down in Tulare. And again, when I go to these tournaments, I, I go with the mindset that it's more of a, a learning experience. I don't go necessarily to say I'm going to win anything. I, I, that, that's an outcome. You 
can't really control that. I learned that early on as well. So by just going in there and trying to work on something, say like a follow through or my anchor or whatever, I usually take something into that tournament and being in that environment, because it's so focused, it, it allows you to really, uh, in, in some cases, make some very breakthroughs where your confidence starts to build. And so I started shooting these tournaments and again, I started to notice, okay, I'm, I'm, my scores have gotten better and I'm now, say, instead of the middle of the, of the, of the pack, I'm getting towards the top, I'm in the top 10, or top five, top three. So that, that was a natural progression, again, of being in the environment. And so uh, in California, we have, uh, we have a ranking system. Or we have two, there's two national sanctioning bodies. There's the National Field Archery Association, and there's U.S. Archery, which was originally the NAA, National Archery Association. And so our state has two basic affiliates for those two national organizations. And so because I was shooting the Olympic recurve, I was part of the NAA or U.S. Archery. And I started to notice that, okay, I'm starting to make inroads. I'm starting to have a ranking, a higher ranking with the, with the group, groups of people I was shooting with. And it, this had to do, again, with being in that environment and putting the time in. And um, going to Vegas, believe it or not, for me was, was a, uh, a means for me to increase my national ranking. It, they have the same idea at the national level for U.S. archery. They don't have it for National Field Archery Association. They have it for U.S. archery. My goal was to try to make the national team. It had to be in the top eight. And so what you try to do, especially when you're limited on resources, is shoot the tournaments that are going to help you the most. So one of those tournaments that's kind of an elective tournament is the indoor. A lot of people don't like to shoot the national indoor. It's an elective tournament. But if you place well, you get some extra points. So that was my strategy. So I'd go to Vegas to warm up to shoot, shoot the indoor national. And every year uh, when I came up with that strategy, I started noticing I would start doing really well at the national level. I was shooting really decent school. I would surprise myself. And so uh, I got to be in the top 30 or so in the country just by Again, just dabbling in that and getting better and having a strategy. But that wasn't necessarily the driving force for me. It was just the idea of getting better. And same with Vegas. Vegas, I, if you go to Vegas and shoot, it's a very stressful environment because we're indoors. Most, most competitive archers would much rather shoot an outdoor tournament than an indoor tournament. But shooting that indoor tournament really helps your uh, resolve. It really makes you tougher mentally. Archery is a mental thing. And so going year after year and failing miserably in the beginning because it's really stressful. And then finally making those inroads to where I'd have the right mindset to, to figure out how to perform well. I would start placing well to where I would win money in my flights or win the flights. So last year, uh, I I I, uh, I think I took third place or something. No, I won. I won my flight. And then uh, the year before, 
I think I took third or something. And I did the same thing with recurve. So the last two times I've shot, I shot a compound. I usually shoot a recurve when I shoot tournaments. But I've been shooting my compound, though. But I've applied those same strategies for shooting the recurve as I did my compound, though. I've, I've won the recurve flight there once as well. To where, again, it's just a short, total surprise. Yet, you know, you just go and shoot. At least for me, that's what I do. I just concentrate on shooting. I don't say, oh, if I shoot this score, I'm going to win. I've, that, that doesn't work for me at all. I just go and shoot. So there's certain things that I've, I've, I've learned. And the Olympic trials is not a, a big deal. Anyone can pretty much go to the Olympic trials. You don't really have to qualify per se. Um, you have to shoot a qualifying score in order to make the Olympic team. That's a whole different thing. And a lot of times with the way that the system works, you don't necessarily get the, the best archers. That's why the Koreans do so well. They have such a large pool of archers to select from that when there's a, an international event, they've got 500 top-level guys. We've got like eight. <laughs> get that. <laughs> wow. Interesting. You mentioned uh, when you first shot Vegas, it was terrible when you weren't doing well, and then you maybe had some sort of a breakthrough. What was it that took you to the next level when you were competing? Baby steps. Baby steps. So the, the idea, even shooting field rounds, same thing. When I first started shooting field rounds, I was making mistakes. The idea is to optimize your score. So I'd make mistakes like I missed pin the target, or I wouldn't move my sight to the correct distance of the target. So I would shoot over the target or under the target, that's five points. That's five potential points that you lost because of a small mistake. And it's the same thing at Vegas. They used to make us shoot that three spot. With the Olympic recurve, it's really tough. When I was, when I was learning to shoot that target with my Olympic recurve, I would miss. I, I would lose points. And so the first time I, I went, I think I shot one or two misses. And then um, the next year, that was my goal. I'm just going to go down there and concentrate on shooting all, all 60 of my arrows in the target. And I, was, I started being able to do that to where I started getting comfortable with that, to where I didn't worry about missing the target. So I was maximizing my effort, not reflected in my score. And pretty soon, again, it started getting better and better because I started to break the problems down in a logical way. And... Nerves has a lot to do with it. That's the cool thing about shooting a tournament. So I don't know if you've drawn on animals that your adrenaline gets up and you start crazy ideas start running in your head. You've got to you've got to have a, a mechanism to deal with that. And so shooting the tournaments will will teach you that. It'll teach you that mental toughness to where okay, I'm on the line. All we're worried about is the task at hand, shooting the arrow, not worried about the last arrow we shot, the last end, or what we're having for dinner tonight, nothing. And that takes practice. That's not a, it's not something that's a, a natural thing to do, especially in that environment, especially in that environment. <laughs> yeah, Vegas <laughs> is pretty stressful. Yeah, so Vegas, it sounds stressful. And I haven't gotten the chance to draw back on an animal yet. And I imagine it's <laughs> going to be very stressful what do you think are some of the biggest differences between uh target archery and hunting and the way you get better at each uh target archery is pretty much for the most part one aspect one thing that you need to concentrate on and that's your ability to 
execute shots by shooting, you know, shooting the bow. Bow hunting is it's two disciplines: hunting and shooting your bow. They're they're two different things you've got to learn how to master. Learning the behavior of the animals, learning where to shoot the animals, learning how to track the animals. <laughs> That's a whole world onto itself. And now, again, you're, you're, you're trying to shoot these animals. Now you have to have the skill. Okay, what do I do when I shoot an animal that's 30 yards downhill and it's a uh, 10 degree slope? What do I do? You've got to figure all that stuff out. How to be downwind, how to shoot uphill, how to shoot between trees, all of that stuff. So that's separate from the actual science or art of knowing about animals. Just, just knowing how to be in the same general area as the animals. Or in the case like it's turkey season, the behavior of the animals. The turkeys... There are two seasons in California. We have the spring and the fall. In the spring, if you do your homework, you know, okay, I can call them in. They're mating. I can call them in. Can't do that in the fall. They don't respond to anything. So you have to come up with the strategy. You have to figure out, okay, how am I going to get close to these animals? They're not going to let you just walk up to them. So that's one thing that a lot of guys don't really focus on. And the best bow hunters that I've met through the store uh, – they are very, very um, detail-oriented when it comes to the environment and the animals that they're hunting. They do a lot of research just on that. And then they'll take that information and say, okay, these are the skill sets that I'm going to need in order to execute a shot shooting these animals. For example, if you're shooting doll sheep or something like that where the terrain is really crazy up and down here. One, you got to be in shape. Two, you got to be able to shoot at angles. And that's not shooting at angles is not a an intuitive thing. You've got to work at it. <laughs> so that's where the field archery comes in. That's why you see a lot of these high level guys. They shoot a lot of uh, IBO or ASA uh, unmarked 3D because that's what they do. They they set up these scenarios to say, okay, there's no bullseyes on these animals. The 3D animals, there's no bullseyes. You can't see them. But we're going to put them in realistic situations. And you've got to figure out how to solve the problem. <laughs> so that's the biggest. Shooting tournaments is pretty straightforward. Okay, we're going to shoot four distances, 90, 70, 50, 30 meters on a flat lawn. We're going to shoot, you know, 36 arrows at each distance. We've got, you know, three to six minutes to shoot you. It's all spelled out for you. It's relatively simple. But the bow hunting thing, that's a whole... That's much more complex. That's amazing. Yeah, and I know, you know Roger, uh, Josh has told me a lot about you in the process of you working with him. And I know you've, you've got folks from both worlds, right? You've got hunters that are trying to get stuff dialed in. You've got target archers. What would you say, like to the point you, you made about things being so different, what would you say are the major kind of technical problems you see with most bow hunters when you're, you're uh, kind of first evaluating them in the shop? They're overbowed. <laughs> preaching to the choir keep going <laughs> that's the biggest problem i see yeah is yeah they're shooting too much draw weight and their bows are physically too heavy so it doesn't allow them to execute a shot uh, execute a shot under pressure again i can't explain to these guys i try to explain to them when you see that 
that record animal standing in front of you. And you've got a bow that under the best of circumstances, you're, you're working the pullback. You're not, you're not going to pull it back when you're drilling this up. And you got all these thoughts racing through your head. You're, you're at a disadvantage. So I try to tell all the guys, your bow should be a toy. It should be extremely easy to shoot. Not hard, easy. Mm-hmm. Because again, when you're shooting at these crazy angles, the same thing. You, you've got to execute that. You've got to be able to pull through the shot. If you have a bow that's overbowed to where you can't get into position, forget it. Yeah. It's not going to happen. With, uh, what, with form, too, I mean, it, that seems like a pretty common one with overbowing, but what, do you, what would you say is the most common problems with their form as hunters? It, it starts with just the, the mechanics of the shot. So your, your stats are your posture. So when I'm watching a guy shoot and his draw length is two inches too long and his bow shoulder is coming up, he has no leverage on the bow. Again, he can shoot arrows when it's 20 yards on a flat indoor range. Mm-hmm. If I take him out to a range and say, okay, we're going to shoot that 40-yard target uphill and it's at 15 degrees, he's going to be all over the target. So the draw length, everybody wants to shoot a longer draw length than they should. And again, if you have, I usually tell the people, if you have the option of shooting slightly too short or slightly too long, always pick slightly too short. But have more leverage on the bow. Hmm. Same with the draw weight. Everybody wants to shoot the crazy draw weight. So you got to do the funky high draw or low draw, this wind-up thing. The animals aren't going to let you do that stuff, especially when they know you're there. you got to put your hands straight in front of you and pull that thing back nice and smooth, not hmm. bounce off the draw stop or any of that. So I see a lot of that stuff. I see oh, yeah. a lot of it. Yeah, but what, uh, you know, for guys... For me, for example, I got into bow hunting for the hunting side. Like you said, really interested in the animals. And, you know, we've got the off season right now. It's kind of the middle of winter. And, you you know, I think a lot of folks, if you just love shooting a bow, it's natural to kind of think about transitioning into target archery. What, do you, what would you say is the best way for your average hunter to start doing that? You know, what kind of tournaments would it be talking to a guy like you first? Like what would be the, the way you'd walk them through making that transition? So what most people don't realize is the NFAA, National Field Archery Association, is basically an organization that promotes bow hunting. So all of the archery ranges we have here in the Bay Area are all NFAA affiliates. So the CBH, California Bowman Hunters Association, State State Archers Association, that's all NFAA. And the reason why we shoot those courses, we don't understand, ah, you just have to shooting a rope. No, it's a hunting simulation. That's all it is. It's a hunting simulation. So I tell most of the guys that come in and buy the bow for the first time, that's one thing I tell them. I said, if you want to get good at this, you're going to learn how to go out there and shoot good scores on an NFAA field round. That's going to give you the skill sets to where, again, when that animal's in front of you, you're going to be able to execute the shot. So that's the Easiest place to start is if you're near uh, an NFAA club, and they're all over the country. Mm -hmm. Technically, they're all over the world. NFAA is part of the IFAA, International Field Archery Association. Field archery is code for bow hunting. (laughs) (laughs) So that's where you would start. Learn how to shoot NFAA field rounds. And then you can take that. Once you've kind of learned how to keep the arrows on the target and make the right decisions to where you're not shooting over the target, Mm-hmm. This stuff. Then you can take to the next level. The next level is unmarked 3D. 
That's a that's a whole different game. Because they're freestanding three-dimensional objects. And the hardcore guys are going to walk up to the animal or the object, or in this case, a 3D target, and guess the yardage within a half yard. That's the goal. It's to say, oh, that animal, even though I have a rangefinder, I don't have one. But because I have the skill, I've worked on the skill, I can guess with probably within a half yard what that, what that distance of that animal is. And then execute a shot, put it in the kill shot. That is super impressive. So well, first would be so you, you're familiar with uh, uh, Levi Morgan. Yes, he's he's an outstanding bow hunter. Why? Because <laughs> he's a fantastic. He's one of the best target archers ever. But that's with all those guys, and that's when I was shooting the Olympic recurve stuff. All the guys I was shooting against, all these medalists and stuff, they're all bow hunters. And they figured out early on, because they had mentors, usually their fathers, no, this being able to shoot this bow at a high level is just going to help you with your bow hunting. So that's why they got into the bow hunting. So um, Vic Wanderley, he's a he's an Olympic silver medalist. And I've shot with Vic quite a few times. He's a bow hunter. All those guys are. Butch Johnson... Uh, Brady Ellison, he's a current world champion, Olympic recurve shooter. Brady's a bow hunter. All of them are bow hunters. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, I, I remember you mentioning early on uh, when I was at the shop and always picking your brain and trying to sneak in questions uh, between coaching um, about you mentioning that like the top guys are often doing both and just constantly improving. Um, for people who like are just the bow hunters and they they like set down the bow basically during off season uh what do you think are some good drills or or actionable items that they can do at home uh that can help them stay sharp throughout the off season in preparation for next year so one is strength archery is an athletic activity so when you set your 70 pound compound bow down for three months you ain't just gonna pick it up and shoot it (laughs) Not going to shoot it well. So one is conditioning. You, you've got to maintain those muscles. So we get guys that buy those for the first time, and they want to shoot more weight than they really can. So we have to kind of detune the bows. So, for example, a guy buys a 70-pound bow, but he can't shoot 70. He can't shoot 65. He can't even really shoot 60. So we'll back it down. All these bows and valves, we can back them down like 55 pounds. So buy the bow and shoot at 50 pounds, 55 pounds. And eventually, he'll get strong enough to shoot 60, 63, 64, and he'll work his way up to 70. Now, if you put your bow down, and you're shooting, I don't care if your normal weight is 60, you put it down for a month or two, you're not going to be able to just pick it up and pull it back. And when I talk about pulling it back, I'm not saying once, I'm saying 50 to 100 times, easily. It's a cumulative effect. That's where everyone gets it wrong. They think they could pull a bow back once if that constitutes being able to shoot the bow. Nope. <laughs> you got to do more than one rep. So I usually tell the people, one of the things that you can do, you're not shooting on a regular basis, is you take your bow. And you can buy a training release. We have these training releases that we, we set the bows up. They're basically releases that just have a hook on it. They have a trigger on it. So you can't drive fire out of the bow. Now, if you don't have one of those, you could just... Make a fist on the string and just draw the, the bow back like you normally would 
and hold it for five seconds and let down. Count to two, three seconds and do it again. Do that for, you know, 10 minutes a day, three times a week, you'll maintain your strength. So when it is time to go and shoot, that's one aspect of the shooting the bow that you don't have to worry about. You maintain your strength so you can execute a shot. But if you just set the bow down and you don't have the strength to shoot, what's even worse is you get older, you can actually injure yourself. I see a lot of that. Guys set their bows down. They think they're going to just pick it up and shoot it, and they tear their labrum or their rotator cuff or something like that because they don't respect that bow. So that's one thing that's relatively easy for everyone, regardless of whether you're shooting a compound or recurve bow, is maintaining your strength. So just pulling the bow back, drawing and anchoring and letting down for, say, maybe 10 days. When we shoot the Olympic recurves, it's kind of a normal thing that we do. It's called SPT, Specific Physical Training. We sit there and we just draw and hold the bow because we know how important it is when we're shooting the recurve. We're holding all that weight. We're trying to be as still as possible. So it's really important. So everybody can benefit from that when they sit the bow down on the offseason. Now, the other aspect is most people don't work on their mental game. <laughs> and archery is 99% mental. It's 99% mental. And so one of the drills that you can do, and I've talked to you about this, is try to mentally construct the shot from beginning to end with as much detail as possible. And in the beginning, you know, you can kind of get through maybe a half a shot before you lose concentration, start thinking about everything. But the idea would be to shoot like 10 consecutive shots uninterrupted. So you just sit down in the quiet room and close your eyes. And with as much detail, see as much about where you're shooting, how you're shooting, everything, and do that over and over again. It takes practice. So that's developing your ability to concentrate. But you have to work at it. So those are two real easy things that you can work on that most people don't work on. They ignore completely. They think um, shooting 30 or 50 or 60 yards is going to make you better. No. It's these little things that make you better. So most of the, those pros, if you go to their blogs and stuff, they, they do a lot of blank bail or close distance shooting on just executing the shot. They're not worried about shooting 800 yards. It's not that important. They know they got to work on their ability to anchor, how to actually execute the release properly, whether it's a back tension release, a thumb trigger release, or an index finger release. Just the interaction of that, doing it consistently. Shot after shot takes a lot of work. And you can't really focus on that when you're shooting 60 yards. So in the off-season, that's what a lot of the guys will do. They'll just sit in their garage at target three, four yards away for hours. <laughs> just, again, breaking down the shot with small details. So those, those three things, blank bailing, working on your strength, the SPTs, and your mental concentration amazing yeah i used to uh josh knows this but i used to live in like a 750 square foot place in the city and uh <laughs> i managed to set one of those reinhardt targets up on the top of my dresser and i'd sit there at three yards and just yeah. you know try to hit the, the little individual cracks in the thing <laughs> and, and again it's not so much about aiming it's about the execution so what we'll do is we'll do that same deal but we'll close our eyes so mm -hmm. we can actually feel the shot but i know when i'm shooting that's what i'm doing I'm, I'm feeling the shot, especially if I'm shooting my Olympic recurve. I have a clicker on there. I don't listen for it. I feel it when it drops. That's when I release the bow. So there's all kinds of little things 
that's why I would tell any of the guys that are want to get really good at bow hunting, start going to these tournaments and hanging out with these high level target guys. And again, the majority of my bow hunters, majority of my bow hunters, and you learn all this stuff, you learn all these little drills and things that they do to where they're athletes in that sense. They're really honing in their ability to shoot that bow. They've got lots of little insights. And the funny thing is that you usually start hearing the same, <laughs> the same message. <laughs> it's the same message. Everybody's saying pretty much the same thing. That's the, the cool part about it. Yeah, you start to notice the patterns. Uh, now, I know, Roger, one topic you're passionate about is the equipment versus the shooter problem. What do you mean Ooh. by the equipment versus the shooter problem? And I, and I sell archery equipment, and I shouldn't be talking like this. <laughs> I know the manufacturers, if, 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 if they had it their way, I would, I would espouse the benefits of having the latest and greatest equipment. That's, that's the market. That's what they want you to believe. But when you show up to a tournament and you see some guy, some old-timer dude with this 20-year-old, 30-year-old bow, and he kicks your butt, it ain't the equipment. <laughs> it's not the equipment. <laughs> so the idea is you, you, it's diminishing returns. And so a lot of the, the target guys figure it out too. They figure out because a lot of them are being very detail-oriented uh, about their scores. They're trying to increase their scores so they can have the possibility of winning a tournament. And so when they make changes there's a rule of thumb that a lot of guys a lot of coaches a lot of guys that i've listened to will say they won't make a change for worse or better if they have something new until after they've used it for 21 days that's when they make the decision whether this piece of equipment is going to be worth having or not there's, there's a phenomenon called the newness factor and a lot of guys and i see them We'll give them a new bow to try or whatever for the first time to come and sh shoot the, like the new Matthews P3 is out now. Guys, they shoot great. They shoot fantastic. They end up buying the bow. Yeah, maybe two or three weeks later, <laughs> those groups start to open up. And it's not the bow. It has nothing to do with the bow. The bow didn't change at all. What changed was their mental outlook. They were very excited. They were very focused on what they were doing because they had this new bow. They are feeling good. So the shot well. But now you go back into your normal thought processes. And that's that's when the groups open up. You start doing the same stuff you normally do. And so you'll start to figure out that the equipment just needs to be good enough. It's not going to make the difference. But a lot of people, I used to have a saying, I still have a saying in years. We don't sell archery equipment. We sell hope. <laughs> and that's what they do. They buy these arrows or... <laughs> And this is going to make this is going to change everything. No, it's not going to change anything. In fact, in a lot of cases, it just makes it worse because you're not addressing the problem. You're paying attention to the symptom, you're addressing the symptom. And so the idea is, the equipment just needs to be good enough. And everybody wants to second guess these engineers, especially when it comes to those. But most people don't realize because they're not shooting the target side. And most of the guys at Beaumont, they're not. They're not getting real technical about stuff. It's, technically, the arrows are way more important than the bow. The arrows are more important than the bow. The bows are, that stuff is sorted. 
the bows are way better than we are. Then that's without question. They're way better than we are. The way that you should select a bow is not because you think it, it's more accurate than another bow. You should select a bow because it feels better than the other bows. Because when we do objective scientific testing, there's no difference. They got, they've had bow shooting machines for years. Match set of arrows, put bow against both uh, a brand A against brand B. It's the same hole all day long. Same hole all day long. And so the idea is not to be distracted. I try to tell most of the people that come in looking for broadheads or knocks or releases or whatever, try to not be distracted by the marketing or your ego. <laughs> try to approach it in the way that a lot of these engineers approach. They're trying to address the problem. Address the issue. What, what issue are you having? Okay, this is the issue I'm having. Okay, what kind of or what piece of equipment is going to allow me to solve that issue? So, like the sight pin, the seven pins versus a single pin. You get these guys to come in. I'm going to get a single pin. And I go, okay, you're going to be, you know, what kind of shooting are you going to do? What kind of hunting are you going to do? Oh, we're going to be spotting and stalking. And I'm looking at thinking, oh, that's probably not the best solution for that problem. The problem they're having is they're, they're, uh, Site picture is cluttered because they, they don't have the ability to concentrate. They don't have a, a process or a program for shooting. And again, shooting those NFA, NFA field rounds will teach you that. These guys aren't doing that. So the shortcut is to spend $300 on a single pin uh, movable site. And I had a guy come in last week that picked up this week. We uh, ordered a, a custom spot hog site for him. And it finally came in. But when he came in, uh, last month, he had a single pin sight. He was out hunting, and he was at full draw on a deer, and the deer started to move. And he decided, okay, what am I going to do? I, I, he's 10 yards further away. I, I don't know what the holdover is. I got to let down. So he let down to try to readjust the sight, and the deer was gone. He said, I'm not doing that anymore. So he decided to come in and buy a, a, buy a five pin sight. So that, again, you can make adjustments on the fly. That's what I tell people. If you have a five-pin sight, the advantage to that is you can make adjustments at full draw. You can make adjustments at full draw, accurate adjustments at full draw. You can't do that with a single pin. So that's what you want to do with the equipment. You want to take a logical approach to it. Don't uh, fall into the marketing of, my buddy's shooting this one, so i got to shoot that one. Same with the, the drop-away versus the whiskey biscuit. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. Those guys don't even know why why we have dropaways. They think it's an accuracy thing. No, it has nothing to do with accuracy. Yeah, you're right. Not shooting a helical through that thing. But I mean it's fascinating. This is this has kind of triggered a lot of thoughts in my head where you know, I've always noticed one thing too is you know, the best I ever shoot with a bow is kind of a it's a year, year and a half into it. You know, it's uh I, I like most beginners bought one and then bought another one fairly soon after. And I remember it was the bow I've had the longest. It was always the one I shot the best. Um, I could go yeah. on, we could go on this one for a while, but what, I mean, you mentioned the arrows are the most critical part in your mind. Is that if guys were putting money towards their setup, is that where you'd recommend they put their cash at this point? The idea is your ability to shoot groups. So we're talking about the difference between accuracy and precision. People don't know the difference. You got to understand the difference. You cannot have accuracy, which is your ability to put that arrow where you want, 
until you have precision. Precision is the ability to reproduce the same result. In other words, shoot groups. That's your priority. Your priority is always precision. Accuracy is easy. <laughs> I see guys in here trying to slide in for an hour because they can't shoot a group. <laughs> so that's where the arrows come in. <clears throat> when your arrows are coming off the bow, you can talk about the flexion of spine. When the arrows are coming off the bow the same way every time, given the same, because the bow is going to store and release energy the same way every time. It's very good at that. But if I have a set of arrows where the deflection from my first arrow to my seventh or eighth arrow is different, mm -hmm. they're not going to be the same. Even on a bow shooting machine, they're not going to necessarily be the same. Yeah. We add the human in that, then the group's getting bigger. So the idea is to think in terms of groups. How consistent is your setup? How consistent is your ability to shoot the arrows? So when we have a match set of arrows, we, we, we eliminate that arrow. We can predict the point of impact much easier than when we don't. We have an arrow that, again, it's uh, 7 or 8 to 10 grains difference in the weight. It's uh, the Well, there are three aspects when we look at the arrow. The weight difference, straightness, and spine. They don't go into detail on the spine uh, much. There's only one company that does that. They'll actually have data on how consistent the spines are. Spine or, or deflection is how much the arrow pins. Mm -hmm. So most of the guys don't even understand the physics of how the arrow on the bow works. Arrows do not fly straight. They oscillate. They have to oscillate. That's just the physics of it. So the idea is the arrows have to oscillate at a frequency that makes them stable. Once they're stable, again, we can predict the point of impact. But when they're not stable, we can't. It's a random occurrence. That's what we're trying to eliminate. We're trying mm -hmm. to create precision. Yeah. So the most important aspect of an arrow is that deflection or its ability to bend. And the way that they do that is the industry standard is you take a 29-inch arrow and put it in between two pillars. You put a two-pound weight on it. And you measure how much it bends. That's what those numbers mean. It's how much the arrow is bending. Mm -hmm. That has to be consistent. So if I have three arrows and two of them are bending at a, a half an inch, and then uh, one another one of them is bending at a quarter of an inch, I don't care how straight they are, how close they are in weight, they will not group together because that frequency is different. It's the same thing when we start talking about firearms. People don't understand that the barrels vibrate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally so whip around. That's the right? same thing with the arrow. And so that's... Again, if you're, if you're looking to, in, in my mind, the idea of shooting a bow well is precision. You're going to put the thing that's actually going to contribute more to your precision than the arrows. Now, you get to the point of diminishing returns, you go out there and buy really expensive arrows. But if your technique is not on point, yeah, it's not going not gonna to help you. It's not going to help you. Yeah. No, I just think yeah, I remember no the magic. Yeah, there's no magic. I distinctly remember the moment when I kind of started getting the form down and I, I had some pretty crappy arrows and was um, broadhead tuning them by uh, shooting bear shafts into a form target. And I just distinctly remember shooting like five side by side and the knocks were just pointing all different ways and going, oh, what is wrong with this? And so then I just started turning them 
and they would point different way every time. And I was like, Oh man, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> these are, these are not quality spines. There, there, there's a lot to it. <clears throat> Even bear shaft shooting. Yeah. Uh, you can go on for hours. I, yeah. I'm fascinated by all the physics of this stuff. And so when we get into the target world, <clears throat> the guys on the bow hunting side aren't, they're not that curious. They basically take a lot of the concepts and principles from the guys from the target world. So like D loops, back tension releases, all that comes from the target world. It's not a bow hunter thing. There are guys <laughs> that I uh, that I look up to. There's one guy from, from from England. His name is Joe Tapley. I call him a Martian. He's from another planet. He's I think a, he's either a professional engineer or a high level scientist. But archery is his hobby. And so he's got a, he just has it upside up. But sometimes you get on these forums and guys are talking about how to tune the ropes and stuff. And, and Joe's got the, he's got an aero flight simulator that he built himself. And it's so good that some of the aero companies borrow it. That's how smart this guy is. Uh, <laughs> he starts to break down how the physics of all this stuff works. And it's not intuitive at all. It's not intuitive at all. It's actually very, very complicated. Very complicated. And so the idea is to keep it simple. And uh, I, I recommend that the bow hunter guys don't start making stuff up to try to solve a problem that doesn't exist. So one, Josh, have you, uh, did I tell you about the Eastern Tuning Guide? Did you ever read that? Uh, no, I don't think so. Not yet. That's kind of a, a good place to start if you're kind of curious on trying to figure out how to tune a bow. And tuning by tuning is actually a misnomer. Setup is probably a better word. Tuning is a, is a uh, personal thing. We all torque the bow differently. And when we're shooting target archery, and because our form is relatively consistent, there's certain flaws in our technique that are consistent that show up that affect the point of impact of the arrow we can kind of uh, tune it out we can kind of get the bow to forgive us for for our sins so a tune bow for archer a is not a tune bow for archer b a true tune it's not it's not how it works it's the same with sighting in the bow both sighted in for me it's not sighted in for you. so when people talk about tuning that when they're shooting through the paper, they don't realize that that rip is not just the relationship between the arrow and the bow. It's the relationship between you, the arrow, and the bow. That rip a lot of times represents what you're doing in your torque. So people put too much emphasis on the equipment. The equipment, even out of tune, will shoot better than any human being. I think uh, Spot Hog's got a... They might still have it up. They, they have a, uh, a bow shooting machine that... The, that the public can buy to do objective testing. That's what the engineers use to do objective testing. But so to market that that hooter shooter, it's called a hooter shooter, they did all these crazy experiments. One of them was detuning the bow. And so they detuned the bow. The knocking point was wrong. Center shot was off. And they said, we watched the arrows wobble all the way down. We could see it. They were flying horribly wrong. Same hole, same hole, same hole. Precision over accuracy. And that's yep. hard to swallow. It doesn't, for a lot of people, it's not intuitive. But when you when you put the time in, you start to see these patterns. You start to see these patterns. 
And I, like I said, I was really fortunate to hang out with some really outstanding archers. I got to hang out with Rick McKinnon. He's one of the best archers that ever shot, as far as Olympic archery goes. He's talk about all that kind of stuff. Even in his book, him and uh, Daryl Pace would shoot with twisted limbs and risers. That didn't mean anything. It's the reason why we shot them was because they were consistent. They didn't have to be straight. They just had to be consistent. So a lot of this stuff is not intuitive. And again, the idea is diminishing returns. You better serve putting more time in the weakest length, and that's usually the archery, than in the equipment. That's the biggest problem that I see. (laughs) For us, it's great. I'd love to sell guys broadheads and arrows every other week. (laughs) I'm not going to get the results that they're looking for because they're not putting that energy whether you Beautifully put. Yeah, thank you, Roger. Um, I've got one more question for you, and I'm going to put you on the spot for this one, and we can cut this down if you want. But uh, originally when I emailed you, um, I was a little hesitant because I know you're a little bit more introverted. You don't like to brag, um, but we had such great conversations at the shop. And I asked you to be on the podcast, and I sent out that email. I was very hesitant. And in that email, you replied back and you said, it is my spiritual obligation and honor to share with what are, with others what has been so graciously shared to me uh, with me. Uh, what did you mean by that? Uh, my, my curiosity with things, um, in, in this case, archery, you kind of have to go it alone. You don't know anyone that, that does it. So you're kind of stepping into the great unknown. But I was, I was really, really uh, glad that I, I'm in this area. This Bay Area is actually kind of have a history of like uh, really good target archers. We kind of have a history of Ben Rogers and uh, that at the national, international, they're well known. Ben Rogers is a big time dude. He's right down here in San Jose. I know Ben. When I would shoot leagues, oh, Tom Daly Sr., he's the first guy to shoot a 300 at at Vegas. Tom's my friend. He's our NFA director. These people were so open and so kind and so um, their spirit was so uh, infectious that it, it, it drew me in more to the sport. And so and again, I, what, what I was talking about in the beginning, that camaraderie, I, I felt that early on. I was like, this is familiar. So when you start shooting these tournaments, when you go to these national and international tournaments, there's a group of guys, even now, when I go to Vegas and I see, see the guys that I used to hang out with 10 years ago, trying to make the, uh, the national team, we still have that bond. We still have that bond. And so someone like a Tom Daly taking the time to – talk to me about my release or um, a story that they, because a lot of times they just tell you stories and you understand the message that they're trying to convey. It's invaluable. That's the only reason why I am, I'm able to shoot the way that I am able to shoot. It's not my talent. It's the information that I receive. And again, these people were kind enough to share that with me. Does that make sense? Yeah. And uh, I just want to say thank you for being kind enough to share this information uh, with Baxter and I and, and yeah, with our absolutely. audience. Really appreciate it. Is there any website or, or place people can contact you or where do you like to pay, point people if they want to say hi? 
Uh, they can uh, contact me at uh, Roger at archeryelegance.com. That's my, my really cool website. Or um, they can uh, contact me here at the, at the shop as well. So uh, info at archeryelegance.com. Got it. Yeah, I remember talking to Josh early on and saying, hey, one of the best things you could ever do for your, your archery is to get a good you know, lesson with someone who knows what they're doing right off the bat. So. Yeah, because you, you, it's not intuitive. A lot of people waste a lot, and I see it all the time. People, they get frustrated and they quit because yeah. you know, they're, they're taking the wrong approach because they think they know already. Yeah, or they or they build yeah. bad habits, right? That's even worse. <laughs> well, no, it's the idea. It's the human yeah. nature thing. It's like, how hard can it be? You know, you just aim. <laughs> yeah. Aim. How hard can it be? <laughs> well, that's a great way to end. Uh, thank you, Roger, for coming on. And uh, for those listening, thank you for listening. I hope you found something valuable uh, in this one. Go blank bail. Go uh, do some visualization. Keep up the phys physical aspect during the off season, and uh, we'll catch you on the next episode.